last week began talking about, actually asked the question, if you were willing, were you really willing to follow Jesus? And we talked about the calling of his first disciples. We were in Matthew chapter 4, and we heard from from Jesus calling Peter and Andrew, and, and it says they left their nets, and at once they followed him. And a little bit farther up the road, he sees James and John, and it says they immediately followed him also. They left their boat and their father behind. They, these men were willing to follow Jesus. And we de- defined what a follower was, and a follower of Jesus is one that follows the opinions and teachings of Jesus, one that imitates Jesus. Of that definition of being a follower of Jesus, because that that that's it right there. We're, we're going to follow his teachings, his opinions, and, and we are going to imitate the way he lived his life. And, and when you think about the question, are you willing? It's amazing as as human beings, when we're willing to do something, how far we'll go and the things that we can accomplish. I, I look back at my own life and there's times in my life that I was willing to do kind of crazy things and I was able to accomplish them. I, I ran a half one miles. That's, uh, I, did, I was willing to do it once. I doubt I'll be willing to do it again. Uh, but the funny thing is 13.1 miles isn't even that far there was thousands of people in the race with me doing the exact same thing. So, so I thought I was doing like, wow, this is incredible. And, and, and then there's people that had double that. They ran 26.2 miles. <laughs> they ran a full marathon. And then I, I used to be really into running years ago, especially where I lived in Kansas, and it kind of became an obsession I'd run 10 miles to work just to, just to get my run in for the day and different things like that. But then I started reading about people that they were crazy. I mean, their passion for running like exceeded anything I could fathom in my mind. These were ultra marathoners. Have you ever heard of ultra marathons? Yeah, these guys run 135 mile races. Over two or three days, they, they run these races. And I remember reading about the ultimate ultimate marathon and it's in death valley it's called bad water ultra marathon okay don't do it i'm just going to warn you right now it's 135 miles in 115 degree heat and now nighttime to get a little little bit of shade at nighttime but the other thing is they start at negative sea level and they finish near Mount Whitney over 8,000 feet. So they go from negative 200 sea level and climb over 8,000 feet over a couple days, over 135 miles. And the thing about this race is people have to be chosen to run in it. And I read an article about a guy that had run in it like, like 12 years in a row. And his whole life was focused around running this race. And he would train for it and get ready for it. And there's a few things he had to do. He had to buy a brand new pair of shoes before the race. Because by the end of the race, the shoes were ruined. Because they would start to melt on the asphalt because it was so hot. And if he didn't go ahead and remove all his toenails before the race, they would come off during the race be pulled off. And you're thinking, why do you do this? So this guy's in the race, and he's nine miles into his 135 miles. If any of us went out and ran nine miles, we'd be like, I'm done. I'm good for a month or two. Nine miles into it, he collapses. They come, and they get him. They, they get him into the emergency tent, give him IVs, get him, get him back to health. 
eight hours he's in the emergency tent. And he tells his family, I'm going to finish the race. And they let him go out, start from where he was, and he finishes the race. And you're like, why? Why would you do this to yourself? But, but that was their, their passion, was this ultra marathon. For some reason, they were obsessed with running this race. And it's amazing as humanity, really, when we're willing to do something, and not just willing, but passionately willing to do something, we can become a force to reckon with when we really become passionate about doing something. I believe this tells us that not only should we be willing to follow him, but we should be passionately willing to follow him. And I read this last week, Luke chapter 14, 25 through 27. It's a warning, but it's also this, hey, if you're going to follow me, don't just be willing, but be passionately willing. And this is what he says. It says, a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. A version of the Bible translation called the message summarizes it like this. It says, put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. What Jesus is asking from his followers is saying, hey, don't just follow me, but follow me with passion. I want to be your treasure. I want to be the center of your life. So Jesus, he lived 2,000 years ago. Just think about this. 2,000 years ago. And every morning, 2,000 years later, millions of people all over the world gather and still talk about what he taught and what he did. And he only lived 33 years, and his ministry only lasted three years, and look at what happened. And I look back, and, and you can honestly say Jesus and his disciples started this powerful movement. His disciples were willing to die for him, so that they could tell people about him that that movement was a force to be reckoned with, right? Because these passionately followed Jesus. Jesus was their treasure. He was the center of their lives. I look back at my, my childhood and my early years, and, and you've heard me say it, but my passion when I was young was playing football. Now, obviously, I was too small and not fast enough and all those things, but it didn't keep me from loving the game of football. I loved it. And, and, and when I, I was a water boy from my dad's high school football teams, then I got to play for my dad's teams, and I loved playing football. And, and what's interesting about that, as I've gotten older, when I look back at that passion that I had to play football, I have begun to realize that my passion wasn't as much about football as it was to please my dad. You see, never did my dad have to come to me and say, well, I really want you to go out for football this year. I, I really want you to get in shape and start lifting weights to play football. He never had to tell me that. I was 100% willing to do all of those things. Whatever it took to play football, I was willing to do it. Why? Because, well, I thought football was my passion, but really, it was this love for my dad that drove me to love this because I loved what he loved. 
I loved who he loved. If he loved his football players, I loved him too. And when I look back at that, I think that's what Jesus wants from us, right? Because the thing is, when we love something, when we love someone, that fuels our passion. And if we want to passionately follow Jesus, we have to begin by loving him. It all begins by loving Jesus. I read a story one time about a guy that was hired by a house owner. It was in New York, and this guy owned this old, dilapidated house that no one had lived in for years. And he had owned it for a while, and he finally thought, you know, I need to do something with that house and get rid of it. And so he hires a guy to go in and basically just gut the inside of it, clean it all out. And so this guy goes in and kind of a one-man crew, and he's tearing out all the old old walls and taking it down to the studs. And at one point in this old house, he discovers there's like this trap door or this little secret door in the walls. And he's, he's fascinated by it. And he starts figuring out how to get into it. And he, he opens it up. And inside this, this wall was this big chest. And he gets all excited and he opens up the chest and it's literally full of money and, and all these valuable things. And he's like, whoa. And he sits there and, do I call the guy that owns the house? Do I do that? Instead, he decides, no, I know what I'm going to do. He calls the guy that owns the house and he says, hey, I'd like to buy this house from you. I, I really like it. And I'd like to buy the house from you. And so the guy says, well, you know, I really think that house is worth a lot of money once it gets all fixed up. So they make a deal, and this guy doesn't have the money, but he goes home and he begins to sell his own personal stuff so that he can get enough money to buy this house. Why? Not for the house, right? It's for the treasure that's inside of the house. And, and that's a story that part of it's true, some of it's not, but that doesn't really matter because it's a story that comes straight from Jesus. If you go to Matthew chapter 13, there's this parable that Jesus tells. It's one verse, and this is what it says. The kingdom is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and he sold all he had, and he bought that field. You see, this guy finds this treasure in the field or in the wall of a house, and he gets rid of everything he has. Why? So he can buy that treasure. You see, what Jesus is saying there is that he is the treasure. And if you want him as the treasure, you need to get rid of everything else that gets in the way of him being your treasure. <laughs> you see, in the world that we live in quite often, we have so many treasures, don't we? <laughs> we all do. And, and when I think about being a follower of Jesus, it's pretty easy in our world to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I, I go to church on Sunday. And a lot of times that's how we define being a Christian, right? We, we go to church on Sunday, or I belong to a church. And sometimes for some people, being a Christian means, well, I punched my heavenly ticket. I don't have to worry about hell now. I, I, I became a Christian. I prayed the right prayer. Sometimes being a Christian is your political outlook on life. Uh, being a Christian has become a huge political thing in our country. It's a belief system. It's a religion. Uh, being a Christian can mean all of these things. But here's what I would say is claiming Christianity as a belief system or a political position or just someplace we go on Sunday morning is not the same thing as being a follower 
of the ways of Jesus. You see, Jesus in his day, he warned the religious people. In Matthew, he says, these people honor me with their lips. He's talking to the religious leaders. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, if we go back to the Old Testament, kind of the beginning of the, of the Jewish faith, of the Israelite nation, we find Moses on Mount Sinai, and he meets with God. And God gives him ten rules, which we know is the Ten Commandments. And, and when you read through the Ten Commandments, especially the first three, it's pretty evident that God wants our focus on him. That God wants us to see him as the number one thing. He wants to be our passion in our lives. You just look, number one is you must not have any other God before me. Back in that day, almost every other religion on earth, every nation served multiple gods. But the, the Israelites, they were one God. The creator God, the God that, that loved them. And so, so God's saying, no, you have no other gods before me. And man, we could name off all kinds of gods in the world we live in, right? And then he says, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind. You must not bow down to them or, or worship them. So these idols, you don't have anything. And those, those could be things that are actual statues, or they could just be something like a hobby or a sport or something in our life that has become an idol. Number three says you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. In other words, God says, make me number one. Worship me and don't defame me in what you say or how you act. You see, God was telling them, I want to be the center of your life. I want to be your passion. And God gave them 10 rules. The problem is you can follow a rule, right? And not even like the rule giver. Now, we all went to school, right? Junior high, high school, followed the rules. Most of us did, maybe not all of us, but we followed the rules. It didn't mean we loved our principal, right? Didn't even mean we liked the principal, but we followed the rules. Why? Because we didn't want to get in trouble. We wanted to stay, be the good kid, right? We can follow the rules and not even love God. You see, Moses then, after he gives the Ten Commandments, he lays it out for the Israelite people. And then in chapter 6, Deuteronomy, he takes it deeper. And he makes it more passionate. And he tells them a thing that the Israelite people came to know as the Shema. And I want to read to you the, the whole thing to start with, and the actual Shema is a little bit longer than this, but this is the basic Shema prayer that the Israelite people began to pray. And Moses tells them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So you see what Moses is doing here. Here's the commandments. But man, it all begins with you first have to love God with all your heart, all your soul, 
and all your strength. That's where it begins. And the commandments aren't just something to follow, but there should be where? On your heart. They should be in you. And so I want to kind of go through this as the Israelites would see it. As even the Jewish faith today holds this as a pretty important thing, the Shema. And so it begins with here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the word Shema that they use to define this prayer, it means to allow the words to sink in. It provides understanding and generates a response. In fact, it's not just hearing it, but it's, a, it's an action word that I'm going to live this out in my life. It's not just hearing it, it's actually acting on this. That's what Shema literally means. And so now the Israelite people, they took this and they made it into a daily ritual. And it started, I believe, as a passion and so the importance of this prayer was found in the Lord is one. And we remember that not just there's one God, but the Lord is the one. That's who our focus should be on. And so then from there, you go into deeper into the prayer, the part that's the meat of it, right? And that's Deuteronomy 5 and 6. It says, Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, these commandments I give today are to be upon your hearts. Again, it's just one God. We're going to love God passionately with everything that we are. We're going to place him in the center of our lives. He's going to become the passion of our lives. And then we go to verse 7. Deuteronomy 6, and 7, or Deuteronomy 6, 7 says, Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie. Hey. You see, the Jewish people now, they took this a little bit later, and now I said they made it a ritual. Well, they, they took this verse where it says, talk about it when you lie down and when you up. And so what they did is they made it a ritual two times a day. When they woke up in the morning, they would say the, the Shema. When they went to bed at night, they would say the Shema, which is, which is great. And the purpose, obviously, was to remind them to love God. Be passionate about loving God. And then the next verse, it says, Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Well, I want you to understand what Moses meant when he said this. When Moses said, bind it on your forehead, uh, bind it on your hands, what he was saying is when we use our eyes to see in, in our hands to do almost everything. So the language symbolically represents how the words of the Shema prayer were meant to guide the and guide the actions of every moment of our lives. So, so the idea was kind of symbolic that it's on your forehead right between your eyes. And, and so everything you're doing, you literally see this Shema on your forehead. And then if it's on your hands, symbolically, you're saying everything I do, I see that and I'm reminded that I'm, I'm doing this. Why? Because of the God that I serve. Now, the Jewish people took it to the extreme because they were passionate about it at first. And, and they took this and, and they made these little leather boxes. And you can see one right there. They still use them today. They're called tefillin. That's the name of that box right there. They're small leather boxes. And what they do is they take the Shema prayer and they handwrite it and they put it into that box. 
And then you can see the next slide, they take the box, place it on their forehead, and they put it on their arm, sometimes in the bicep, sometimes on the outside, but the leather strap goes all the way down their arms, and then it ties certain ways through their fingers. Again, all of this is to remind them, and, and in both boxes is the Shema prayer that they hand right out, and they put it in there. And so everything they're doing throughout the day, and if you're interested, you could find a tefillin on Amazon for $205. You could get both boxes, and you can doing this. But, uh, but anyway, then you go to verse 9. So we're in Deuteronomy 6, 9. Now it says, write them on your door frames, and on your houses, and on your gates. And, and, and now... Basically, what Moses was telling them is, man, wherever you go, as you walk out of your house, as you're walking through your doorframe, be reminded to love God with all your heart. As you walk back into your house, be reminded that you love God. And so, again, the Israelite people were passionate about it, and they thought, okay, if we, need, we need to take this to heart, and we're going to put it on our doorframes. And so they came up with the, the muzazah. That's the best way I could describe it, the muza, or the, pronounce it, the muzaza. Again, is a small box that you handwrite the Shema prayer, and you put it in that box right there, and it's on the doorframe of the house. And, and so as you leave, you would touch the muzaza, touch it, then kiss your hand, or either way, as you're leaving the house or as you're coming. And, and why are they doing this? To remind them that they should love God with all their heart. And, and so the Jewish people took this Shema prayer, and man, they went to great lengths to make sure that they were going to basically make sure that they remembered to love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind. And this is great, and it has value to it. I, I've told you guys before, I've done it in my own life, I've taken verses and I've taped them to my mirror in the bathroom. I've, I've put them in the book that I'm reading, so when I open it up, I see it. I've put them on my desk so all day. But here's the problem. When I do that, and I have it on my mirror, it's great for a week or two. And, and then I begin to basically ignore that it's there, be, just becomes part of my everyday life. Same thing on my desk. Pretty soon, if you see my desk, I pile up lots of stuff on my desk, and pretty soon, it, it's no longer part of my thoughts. And, and, and so when we do this, it probably means well. But over the time with these boxes, both the tefillin and the muzaza, it became this thing that the Jewish people argued about. And, and they fought about. They judged each other about. Which is, it, the, the boxes went from the forehead up to the top of the head. And depending on, on what you believed about about certain things or who you were following, you put the box in different places. Or maybe it was here, maybe it was there, maybe it was on the hand. And then they made it, you had to wrap it certain way around your arm. It had to be spaced just right. It had to be interwound in your hands just right. I guess it didn't count. And, and the funny thing is you look back at this and you go, that's not what Moses said. <laughs> Moses just said, hey, Make sure when you're going out in the day, you remember to love God. And then the funny thing about the muzaza, the, the little box that they'd put on their doorframe, they'd put that prayer in there. Somewhere along the way, someone said, you know what we should do? We should put that box so it's pointing to God. So when we walk out with that box and it's pointing to God. 
And another priest said, no, that's not the right way we do it. It should be horizontal. So when we walk into the house, we know that God's pointing us in that we need to remember, and it's pointing out of the house. And they argued over it. So, so about a thousand years ago, the Jewish people settled on, let's slant it, okay? Let's just be okay with, slant. let's compromise, Okay, it's kind of pointing towards God, and it's also pointing in and out. It, none of this is in Scripture. None of it was anything they were supposed to do, and it all started as a passion, right? But then over time, what became more important were the rules, how you did it. Well, not why you did it, but how you did it, how you looked doing it. And sometimes I think, honestly, we think that God like is sitting up there with this checklist. And he's going, hmm, those straps are not spaced evenly. You lose points. Yep, yep. The box down here a little bit, more points gone. We honestly, sometimes I think we look at it like that, that God's keeping, keeping score somehow. What God is saying is, stop it. And just love me. I want to be your passion, not the stupid little box. Oh, by the way, you can buy a mezuzah on Amazon too. They're much cheaper. They're only like 12 bucks if you want to do that. But sometimes we become so focused on the rules that we miss everything. hundred years before Jesus showed up on earth, Moses told the people, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus was walking to tell these same people, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You see, if we don't love the rule giver, it doesn't matter if you follow the rules. And what's amazing is the principles and the teachings this are vital today. 2,000 years after he walked the earth, what he taught is vital to how we live our lives. His teachings are radical and life-changing. But they mean nothing. I don't love them. And so if we begin with the end in mind... We start with love, it changes everything. You know what's interesting is when Jesus was asked what the most important commandment is, you realize he, he quoted the Shema. Number one is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. He's quoting what they'd been quoting for 1,500 years, what they'd been binding to their foreheads. He's telling him, yes, this is the most important thing. <laughs> In fact, he says everything else hangs on that. Oh, every other rule in the Bible, everything else you hear hangs on whether you love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength. <laughs> because if you don't love him, it doesn't matter if you follow the rules. Jesus, just a few of the things he taught us, he said, hey, don't worry about money or stuff. You don't need those things. Because why? It takes our focus off of him, right? Jesus tells us not to worry. Why? 
time when we're worrying, we're worried about these things, and we're not worshiping Him. He tells us not to judge other people. Why shouldn't we judge other people? Because when we're judging other people, we're checking to see if they're following the rules, and we're not focused on Him. When he tells us and teaches us to pray, he says, go into a room by yourself. In other words, focus on me. <laughs> he tells us to serve people, to feed people, to love people. Not just to do it because it's a rule, but to do it because you love those people. To do it because you love the God that created those people. And so the question for us is where... Where is our treasure? What is our treasure? We look at our lives, is it sports? Is it our hobbies? Is it our money? Our houses? Our cars? Whatever it may be. Jesus had one of the wisest statements, I believe, in, in the history of the world when he said, where your treasure is, there your heart is. In other words, he should be our treasure. Because when we love something or we love someone, that love fuels our passion. <laughs> and when we are passionate about something as human beings, <laughs> well, we, can, we can change the world. <laughs> Just like the disciples did. When we are passionately willing to follow Jesus, we become people to be reckoned with. That's the church. Go back again to the Old Testament and these Israelite people, they got these commands. And, and they got the Shema from Moses. And I believe they were passionate about it. And, and God led them into the promised land. And they had this, this leader named Joshua who, who led them into the promised land. They conquered nations. They became their own, their own nation the whole time while they were serving God. And, and at the end of Joshua's life, the people had kind of already begun to go, yeah, you know, I, I kind of like what this country's doing. I like their multiple gods. I, I, I like what's going on over here. They, they tended, as, as people do over time, to kind of lose their focus. And Joshua, towards the end of his life, he calls the whole entire Israelite nation to meet. <laughs> and I could just picture Joshua. He's probably pretty old man at this time. He had a lot of battles. I'm just guessing they didn't have knee replacement or hip replacement. He probably needed it at that point. And he probably walked with a pretty bad limp. And he probably had lots of scars. But I can imagine him walking up in front of the nation of Israel. And he begins to tell them their history. You were slaves. God set you free. You wandered in the desert and then God brought you into the promised land. God helped you defeat nation after nation. And now you're this great nation. And he's telling them all of this. But he knows what they're like. And so in Joshua 24, he says this to the people. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. 
Whether it's the God of your ancestors that say serve beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. He's saying, hey, if you want to do that, that's your business. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Simple statement. But I'm just guessing it was awfully powerful that day. You guys, I know how you're living. You've lost your focus. You've lost your love. But as for me, my passion, my first love is God. Joshua knew the Shema prayer pretty well. Just love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's what we're called to do. Everything else will fall into line. The question is, are you willing to make Jesus the passion and the treasure of your life? Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, forgive us for when we, we mess it. Forgive us for so many things getting in our way of following you. I pray, Lord, that you would renew our passion. Renew our love for you. I pray, Lord, that you would meet each and every one of us right where we need you today. Inspire us, motivate us. And remind us to love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our strength. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here. And I do hope that you love God with all your heart, soul, and strength this week. You are dismissed. <laughs>